Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That in Sweet Home, Alabama, before it was cool, Today, we are going to talk about the Habsburg Empire with my guest, Peter Judson, who wrote a book called The Habsburg Empire. And today, we're going to talk about how the empire functioned, not necessarily the Habsburg themselves. And what inspired you to write the book about how the empire functioned? And I told you this before the recording because it didn't seem half bad to live in the Habsburg Empire compared to other states in Europe at the time. Well, one reason I chose to write the book was to make exactly this point that the Habsburg Empire was a state, a society much like other European states and societies, even though it often is viewed as exceptional or strange or anachronistic. uh, And it's almost always viewed through the lens of the nationality conflict, which I also wanted to offer uh, an alternative to. And if I could just add, we've seen in the last 25 years in my field, wonderful, spectacular studies of regions and localities in the empire that prove that the nationality conflict was not the main story. But we've never had a book that pulled them all together into a big story. And I tried to do that with this book. Mm. And it did it greatly for me. And like like I'm joking about in the opening states, I, I'm pretty sure that most people, when they heard the Habsburg, immediately think incest and uh, incesting. When they hear about Habsburg family, am I, am I right? Uh, well, the older parts of the family, absolutely, and the famous uh, portraits uh, with the jaws and the exaggerated features that are uh, allegedly linked to the intermarriage within the family, mm. yes. <laughs> Now, we've spoken this before, and you're mainly a 19th century historian. And, but we, I feel like because we haven't done an episode about Habsburg before or this topic, I feel like we should start with the Second Siege of Vienna and just briefly talk about the Second Siege and the significance, because it's quite a game changer for the Habsburg as they eventually go on to reconquer Ottoman Hungary. Yes, the, the siege is in uh, the one in 1683. Uh, which is the last time that the Ottomans reached as far as Vienna and they almost captured the city. Uh, It's a mythological moment in European history. Uh, It's also a mythological moment in Polish history because it's uh, the myth is that it's largely due to the arrival of the King of Poland with his army that the Habsburgs were able to defeat the Ottomans. Uh, It's a myth culturally as well. Uh, A lot of people say that this is the moment that brought coffee to uh, the culture of Vienna, although that's not exactly true. The important point is that the Habsburgs at this point were officially kings of Hungary, but they didn't have control over Hungary because the Ottomans did. 
Uh, and this is the moment where the Ottomans begin uh, centuries of real retreat. And they go from being seen as the major, most important power really in Europe to being a declining power and no longer such a threat by the time we get to the 19th century, for example. So the siege of Vienna is a big turning point in history, but the challenge for the Habsburgs after the siege is to reconquer the rest of Hungary and then to repopulate the rest of Hungary and to gain control over it. So how so the, how does the reconquest of uh, Hungary go? Because they do see it until as we know it's called Austria-Hungary for a reason. So how do, how do they go about uh, the reconquest? Well, let me say it's not called Austria-Hungary until 1867 for a very special reason. But in fact, you're right. Uh, they send the armies into uh, what's now Hungary and the Balkan Peninsula in general. But it takes... Uh, up to 100 years uh, to really reconquer all of Hungary and to gain some kind of political control. And it's such a big territory that to gain this control, they have to have the alliance of uh, many of the local landowners. And in creating these alliances, they, they have to, they're forced to give them a certain amount of local power. Uh, and I would say, the reason why Hungary is always so distinctive within the Habsburg Empire is that the Habsburgs never really managed to assert full control in the ways in which they militarily controlled the other regions uh, of their empire. They were always negotiating uh, with Hungary, so to speak. Uh, so it was a long process. There were also revolts. Uh, by the Hungarians, it wasn't, or not all the Hungarians, obviously, there were peasant revolts of this kind of thing. Um, but in general, it's a process that's not concluded really until the 18th century. And mm. um, of course, they're coming back to Hungary, because you do write about it eventually, and how they govern Hungary. And it, I found that quite interesting as well, and we're going to come back to it later. And when you open, of course, we, you kind of had technical opening in 1911, when they try to on democracy, but I want to start with Marie, Maria Theresa and her reformation because they seem quite, quite significant. Because, as the way I understood it, that they were served before, but and how does she abolish serfdom? Because it's quite quite genius way. Well, the challenge for Marie Theresa and also for her two sons, Joseph II and Leopold II is to reform the empire and to centralize it and to make it into an integrated unified state. Because up until this point, it's really a collection of separate states that are all ruled by the same ruler, but that ruler has to make compromises with the nobility in each one of these regions. So when Maria Theresa comes to the throne, uh, her enemies in Europe, uh, Frederick the Great especially, take the opportunity to invade the Habsburg Empire and take territory. And Maria Theresa has just come to the throne. She's not very well trained. And she quickly realizes that she doesn't have the military she needs to be able to defeat uh, her enemies and save the empire. So she does manage to survive. She does manage to defeat uh, the Prussians and the Bavarians. Uh, she loses 
one of the most important provinces to Prussia, that's Silesia. But the experience teaches her that for the empire to survive, it's going to have to be reformed. So a lot of the reforms she makes are designed to take power away from the local nobility and centralize the monarchy so that she has the power. And this is something that a lot of peasants see. Now, for her, the economy of the empire has to also improve because she needs tax money in order to fund the military. And the, the economy is quite inefficient because it's based in most provinces on a very feudal system in which the peasants don't have the opportunity to work on their own land. They have to work for the local landlords and they have to give the landlords a lot of what they produce. So Maria Theresa tries to take the power away from the landlords and to give power to the peasantry to create an independent landowning peasantry that can pay a lot of taxes. She doesn't succeed, but she makes, how should I say this? She makes this possible on her lands. And in some of the provinces like Bohemia and the Western provinces, uh, she's able to enforce this change. She's not able to enforce it, for example, in Hungary or uh, in the new part of the monarchy that she gets with the first partition of Poland. But it's a trend, I would say. Uh, and it's a trend that means that the local peasantry, they begin to understand that she's on their side. And for that reason, the peasantry becomes quite loyal to the Habsburg dynasty because they perceive that the dynasty is working in their favor. Something that you write quite a lot about as well is, is the postal code and the census system, which they kind of were skeptical to it, the way I understood it, because they were afraid that the Romanists and Armen actually resented that she had this ending priest to the several areas where she tried to get postal code lift codes for the areas, because this was quite new at the time. Yeah, yeah. If you have an empire, you need to get an accounting of how many people there are and what kind of economic resources you have. So she would try to get this information from the local uh, administrators, or which is usually priests, and the information she got was bad. So in 1770, she sends the military out to do a census. And you're right, everyone presumes the census will fail because the minute the military arrives in the local villages, everybody runs away. They assume that the men are going to be conscripted into the army. And so there's a real um, worry that the census will fail, but it doesn't, it succeeds. And the, the reason is that the peasants seem to understand that the military is also letting them make their local complaints to them that they will then take to the empress. So in fact, this census of 1770 is, is, is done rather well. Uh, and the other thing you mentioned, the post, this is the first time that she orders that the houses be numbered in each village and town so that people actually have fixed addresses. Has this been done outside Europe before? Is this kind of new invention, so to speak? Is it, or is this, has it already been done under empires? No, I, it's, it's certainly been done elsewhere, but the idea is 
it's part of a larger European trend uh, in these larger states to organize and get central control over local areas through the creation of more and more administration and by giving house numbers, locating people, counting them, determining uh, how much wealth there is in different regions for tax purposes. All these things are going on, I would say, all over Europe in the 18th century. But it's it's relatively extreme in the Habsburg monarchy because they haven't tried to make a central single state before. Something I want to ask about, because when you talk about them, she taking her taking away power from the nobility. How was this viewed by the nobility? Were they talking about revolting themselves, or were they? Oh yeah, they to... were not happy. They were not happy at all, and there were uh, noble revolts. Uh, and as I said before, Maria Theresa had to kind of give in when it came to Hungary. Uh, she was unable to impose this on the Hungarian nobility. One way to persuade the nobility was to give them positions in the central administration. So, for example, in other regions, like the Bohemian nobility became very important in Vienna and running the state. But generally, the nobles were very much opposed to this, and it couldn't be solved. Uh, the central, the emperor, the empress would push, and they would push back. And it's not until 1848 that finally. Uh, feudal relations are ended everywhere. Hmm. Which brings us to building the railway system because that's ah. that's another thing that happened in this time as well. And I was surprised to see that the army wasn't think wasn't thinking about using it to mobilize troops yet. So how, how come the how come the army wasn't interested in seeing the point in using the railway as a mobilization for the troops? Well, this is part of a bigger story or a bigger argument, which. It used to be said that the Habsburg Empire was, how should I say this, an authoritarian military state. And that obviously when the railroads roads were built in the early 19th century, it was for the purpose of the military. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of historians came and actually looked closely at this and found that the military didn't trust the railways. They didn't think that it was a good idea to rely on them. They were such a new thing. Uh, for mobilizing men in a time of war, that it really, they weren't interested in in determining where the railway should go. The railways were generally set up for trade purposes uh, in the early 19th century. And then finally, in the mid 19th century, some of the military generals like Radetzky decided that actually the railway was a really useful thing for moving the military. And during the revolutions of 1848, Uh, he was quite in favor of using them. But you're right, it it was a strange, it seems strange to us today that the military didn't trust this new technology. Oh. So how does the rail the railway building go about how, how what kind of seats down is trying to connect the entire empire or just a few cities in at this case? Stage? Just uh I didn't understand uh, so oh, yeah, sorry, how how did it go about all about building the railway? Did they build it just a few cities or did they try to then connect the entire empire they well uh it was first built to connect uh important trade cities uh and especially industry so the first rail the first big railway connected uh some of the industry in galicia some of the mining 
uh, to Vienna through Moravia. But then the one of the most interesting lines and most important lines was the line that connected Vienna to Trieste, the South Railway. That was for global trade really important because Trieste was becoming uh, a port for the entire Eastern Mediterranean uh, transport and trade. And you needed a railway in order to take things from Trieste to the rest of the empire. So uh, I would say the railways are built around the needs of trade and maybe administration. So they connect in Hungary, they connect Budapest to everything. Uh, but it's not till the 1880s and 90s that you get a really thick, uh, dense network of railways. Did you, I don't know what you mean, but I'm not sure you answered this, but how, when does the military realize that we can use this as oh, military um, mobilization? Uh, it comes really in the, with the revolutions of 1848. Uh, and then they use it for the mobilization in the Crimean War that they, ne- you know, they, they never joined the Crimean War, but they mobilized the troops it, at incredible expense and they're paying it off for years later. But then they do use the railways very much. And in the First World War, oh my God, um, the railways are absolutely critical to the movement of troops. So, of course, you talk about this as well in the book, um schooling and education in the empire, which I found fascinating as well. And uh, yes. you speak about how she tried to reform schools as well. And uh, it's not always successful, but talk about, let's talk about how te- they find teachers and how, how schooling in the empire works, because not always well, people would go there necessarily, but, you know, she, she tried. Maria Theresa tried to uh, develop a school system for the entire empire, which, if you think about it in European terms, was really the first effort of any country. There is no other country where the ruler actually imposes a universal school system back in the mid 18th century. And the reason she did it was to morally improve the peasantry and to educate people to, in practical ways uh, to improve the economy and trade. And so the peasants would improve the way they use the land. But of course, it costs a fortune to fund schools everywhere. And in the end, it was impossible to impose this. Uh, there wasn't enough money. So generally, locally in the 18th century, schools are run by the local priest and the local priest is not uh, well paid. Uh, and often himself isn't particularly literate. But I want to say, still, in Imperial Austria, there is a state-funded, successful, universal uh, school system for boys and girls, eight years mandatory schooling in 1868. Mm -hmm. So by then, the state imposes it, and it really does work. And the literacy level in Austria is the same as that in France, for example, if we, if we measure it. So I like people to remember that 
because we often think Eastern Europe is somehow backward or not modern. And I think we should remember that in terms of education and literacy, uh, Aust Imperial Austria is at the same level as uh, the most advanced European states. And they get this education system well, for example, before Britain gets state education. How many will actually go and finish those eight years in if they were first started getting? Well, I can only tell you what the rate of literacy is, which was the standard measure. I can't tell you how many finished. Although, yeah, that, that's what I was referring to. Yeah. 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 I mean, the literacy rate is close to 90% by mm -hmm. 1900. Now, that's not bad. And that includes areas where it's more like 60%. Uh, in the East, in Galicia or Bukovina, whereas it's close to 100% in Bohemia or Western parts of Austria. And um, would they actually use it, the, the literacy of, you do you know if they would use it, the literacy education after finish the school for further education? Was that possible yes. even? Yes, and this is another interesting point. Uh, two points, I'll say. If you, first of all, if we go back to the end of the 18th century again, one of the uh, products of this effort to unify the empire by Maria Theresa and her sons is the creation of an enormous bureaucracy. And who is going to be in that bureaucracy? Well, the small older bureaucracy was all nobles, but now it was open to the sons of the middle classes. And they, if they got a bit of university education could gain relatively high positions in the bureaucracy. So in the 19th century, education was seen as a form of social mobility. Even if you didn't get to a high level bureaucrat, for example, the children of peasants could become like lower administrators, like running the post office or the telegraph office or have a job as a secretary. And so education was seen as something that would improve your life chances very often. Which, you know, brings us, brings us to the governing of Hungary, as we talked about earlier, because it's, you dedicated quite a bit of the book to that as well. And it sounds like they were more independent states than actual, an actual province and kind of puppets of Hungary. Is that right? Yeah. Um, as I said before, Hungary is the one part of the empire that the Habsburgs never really gain full political control over in the ways that they control the other parts of the empire. Did, did they wish to have full control over it? Did they realize oh, that? Yeah. No. Well, <laughs> what they want is, uh, is the ability to collect taxes mm. Uh, and to and for that reason, you want full control. Yeah. Uh, but the Hungarian diet was very um, well. There was a lot of back and forth between the emperor or the king and queen and the diet, which uh, really had full control over the Hungarian counties. So the Habsburgs failed, and then in 1848, when there's a revolution, the Hungarians basically say we we will be part of the empire but we have our own constitution historically and we the only thing we have in common with the rest of the empire is we have the same ruler so they saw the union with the rest of the empire as personal whereas 
The Habsburgs saw it as a single empire. And this is the struggle that goes on until 1867, when finally the emperor signs the compromise with the leaders in Hungary, and Hungary becomes an independent state with Austria next to it. So it becomes called Austria-Hungary. And the only things they have in common are the ruler and the foreign ministry, foreign policy, uh, an economic policy too. Um, and uh, they don't even have the same constitutions. And if you're a citizen of one, you're not necessarily a citizen of the other. Mm. So they didn't, uh, look at, they didn't look at themselves as Austrians. They looked at themselves as Hungarians. Yeah, but Hungary had other problems because it had fewer than 50% of the people in Hungary actually spoke or knew Hungarian. So a lot of other groups, a lot of other language groups lived in Hungary. And as long as they were part of Austria officially, they had certain rights. But when Hungary became independent, then they lost those rights. And the Hungarian government tried to create a nation state and tried to enforce learning the Hungarian language. And that didn't make other people very happy and it didn't work very well. Whereas the Austrian state remained multilingual and didn't have a single nationality. And we don't we don't go back to that, of course. But I I, I read a book about I don't forgot the author's name, but Hitler and the Habsburg is called. Oh, Hitler, yeah. that's that's what where Hitler mentioned that he, that's kind of the weak point of the empire, the nationalities, the money nationalities of the empire. Said. Yes, that's what Hitler said, and many people today agree with that. I do not. Yeah. Uh, It's true that nationalism became the language of politics in the late 19th century. I don't want to talk about, about that very shortly. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, but just go, go on, go on. Well, uh, what I would say is we have the wrong belief today about how nationalism works. Mm. We actually made an episode about that, a few episodes yeah. about that as well, so we could... We would like to see the origin of nationalism. Please check it out. I saw, I actually, I saw that you had done that episode with Leah mm. Greenfield, I think it was. Mm. Yes. Um, anyway, what I would say is, because in the Austrian Empire, to run the empire, they had to know what the various languages were, and they could never impose a single language. That was impossible. So... In a pragmatic way, local laws were always uh, issued in the local language as well as in the bigger language, like German in the Austrian half or Latin in the Hungarian half. Mm -hmm. But then, in order to find out, for example, if you're going to have schools, you need to know how many children of which language are in which place, so you know what language the school should be in. So they started in the census to ask questions about what language people used. And then in the 1867 constitution, they gave the rights to use your own language. They made it into a constitutional right for the, for the Austrian empire. Uh, you had the right to use your language in schooling. You had the right to use your own language in conversation with the bureaucracy. Uh, in court, legal courts, all of these situations. Now, if you make 11 languages legal in a single country mm. and you guarantee this constitutionally, 
then politically people will organize around this issue of language and say, okay, we speak this language and we want more rights about this language. Language use became a good basis for organizing political parties by the 1880s, I would say. So that's, you get a lot of nationalists who see that they can make a lot of um, national capital uh, using this issue. The problem is the people themselves are not nationalists. And this is the point I would like to, if, if there's one point of my entire life's work that I would like to make, it is that there were nationalists, but not all the people felt national. Hmm. Nationalists had to create a feeling of nationalism within the people. And sometimes it worked and often it didn't. So yeah, that brings us to the next point actually, which is finding nationality within the empire. As you mentioned, there is Michelangelo. So how did it go? So how did nationalism spread to Austria? How did it, with so many different languages, as you said, and uh, with all the, but they didn't feel like they were necessarily Austrian, but they learned to the part of the language. And how, how did that work, not finding the nationality in the empire work? Uh, I would say, first of all, it was the goal of a lot of nationalist politicians to mobilize more and more people in the issue of nationhood. And in the Austrian half of the empire, uh, more and more citizens had the right to vote after 1861. Uh, Gradually, the franchise was expanded in the 1880s. And then in 1907, there's universal manhood suffrage, a universal individual manhood suffrage, uh, so that the politicians are competing more and more uh, for the votes of these new classes coming into politics. And to do so, they make more and more arguments that are more and more radical about the danger of the nation or the importance of the nation uh, to try to mobilize people. So in a way, it's the nationalists who create these nations by bringing nationalism to local people and saying, look, you speak this language, you should have these rights, your neighbor speaks a different language, they're different from you. People didn't always believe this because most people had a loyalty that was more regional, I would say, or even local or religious than national. But as the laws changed, people had fewer and fewer choices not to be national. Um, And really that goes beyond 1918 and the end of the empire. So I won't say any more about that. Uh, But simply that nationalism became important politically, but I don't think it was as important in daily life. So that brings us to the 1911 election, which you open in the book, but I'm, I wanted to bring a more linear line here. So it sounded quite brutal when Austrians tried to, Austria-Hungary tried to popularize democracy, but it didn't seem like the elite or the government was in favor of democracy. So how, what made it so brutal? Oh, why, oh. why were they so opposed? It's because it seemed to me when with all the gun firing and these military forces under the election, how, what, what made the, the government so opposed to democracy? 
Uh, it, uh, the, I opened the book with the election of 1911 to make two important points. The first is that more and more people were involved in uh, thinking about what the empire meant to them personally through the use of the vote, having the vote. Mm. I would say the governments, look, I, I can't think, maybe in Scandinavia, but I can't think of any government in Europe where you could say it was democratic mm. in 1911. Uh, you could say perhaps Republican or liberal. Uh, and if you look at some elections in places like France or Spain or Italy or uh, even Britain, there's often violence. So I wouldn't say Austria-Hungary is so different in that regard. Uh, but the incident I talk about is a voting incident in Galicia, which was the, in the easternmost province, which was uh, in which the Polish nobility had most of the political power. And to keep the political power, they tried to corrupt the election by preventing people from voting for the other candidates. Uh, and in this particular 1911 election, there was a horrible, violent incident where soldiers were brought in to shoot at people who demonstrated because they were not being allowed to vote. Now, the soldiers were not brought in by the imperial Vienna government. They were brought in by the local government, the Polish nationalists. In Vienna, there was criticism of this. And immediately the people who represented those who were killed in Galicia uh, tried to get the government in Vienna to intervene on their behalf. And the government did try to intervene. So I would say the Vienna government was in fact more interested in uh, the universal manhood suffrage because they believed that the more working class people who voted, the less the nationalist parties would win and parties with a bigger, more universal agenda would win, and there wouldn't be such a big nationality conflict. Uh, in the end, I don't think they were correct about this, uh, but I would say they were not opposed to democracy. Uh, they were opposed to disorder. Uh, and often democracy means disorder, but this yeah. is typical of leaders in, in the early 20th century everywhere. So that brings us, of course, to the famous shot of Sarajevo and the uh, murder of Prince Ferdinand. Of course, we have to discuss this. And how significant, of course, this is a significant period of time and change for not just the Habsburgs, but the world. So, but let's mainly focus on Habsburgs for now. So how did this affect the Habsburg Empire? Uh, this was the enormous tragedy. Uh, the assassination of the Archduke was bad enough. I mean, any assassination is bad enough. Uh, but in my view, the assassination allowed uh, the military elite to influence the politics of the empire in a very powerful way and to take the empire to war. The military elite was quite afraid that if something weren't done soon, Serbia, the neighboring state, would gain a lot of power and influence in the region, and that would destabilize Austria-Hungary because there were a lot of Serbs who lived in Austria-Hungary, uh, and a lot of Slavs, of course, as well. Uh, and for the military, the solution to this 
was a war that would really wipe out Serbia for good, which was it, which is ridiculous. <laughs> That's mm. not a way to solve any problem. Um, and most people didn't think there would be a war after the assassination. It didn't seem possible or probable. It's not unlike what's happening today, where even though it was clear to some people, the Ukrainian war was rather a shock to everyone. So when the war was declared, it meant that the military had uh, gained emergency powers over the entire society and could take Austria-Hungary in the direction they wanted to take it, which was a very backward, anti-democratic uh, direction in which they would suppress certain nationalities. Uh, I mean, it was a really horrible vision of what Austria-Hungary should be, and the war gave them that power. So when Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, that was their opportunity to take Austria-Hungary to war and to get rid of this awful political system they hated. They didn't like the fact people could vote or that there were parties that conflicted. They wanted a dictatorship, essentially, and this was their chance. So, of course, they, you, you, said, you, you talked about this uh, before the recording, and uh, you mentioned that they were one of the first, I believe, in Europe or in the world to put up refugee uh, camps for yeah. refugees? One of the, the yes, that, that was a side effect of the beginning of the war. By the way, you mentioned the trains earlier, and the beginning of the war was very badly handled by the military elite. They had these plans that were completely unrealistic, and part of the reason they were unrealistic is that the train system couldn't handle the demands of the plan. In any case, they were completely unprepared when Russia invaded to Galicia in the east. And suddenly there were over 100,000 refugees fleeing Galicia from the Russian invasion and occupation uh, and fleeing to the west. And what was supposed to happen to these people? Uh, there had never been this kind of movement of people. So the government created refugee camps. And as far as I can tell, these are the first serious refugee camps created inside of Europe. There already had been some created elsewhere in the world. Uh, and these camps at the beginning were terrible because they were created overnight. They were, well, that's right, at least. Well, they were... Uh, later, they, they made the camps actually much better. Uh, and, but at first, there were no sanitary, terrible sanitary conditions, a lot of disease. It was really awful. By the second year, uh, they had cleaned them up and it became a different kind of institution. But it's interesting that these refugee camps were really the first ones, as far as I know, in Europe in general. Of course, the Habsburgs and First World War would be an episode of its own. And we don't, we're not going to waste much time. Talking about it here today, but we know how that war goes eventually. So, how does the amputation of the Habsburg go? What makes them resign? Ah, yeah. Is so, it because purely because they lost the war, or is it because yes. other reasons as well? The short answer is it's because uh, Austria Hungary lost the war. Uh, but the longer answer is uh, the old emperor, who Franz Joseph, who was the emperor when the war started, was 86. He had allowed the military to have full control and they made a mess of everything for two and a half years. 
Franz Josef died and his young great nephew came to power, uh, Emperor Karl, who was barely 30. I mean, the guy was very young and he was actually quite popular. He had a very young wife uh, and a big uh, growing family and it was seen as a moment of renewal. And when Karl came to the throne, he reversed the military dictatorship. He called back the parliament. He He got rid of some of the censorship He made an amnesty for all the political prisoners who were unfairly uh, in prison. So he started off quite well. And then the other thing he tried to do was to take Austria-Hungary out of the war. But he couldn't. The power of Germany in the alliance was too strong to allow Austria-Hungary to simply make a separate peace, which is what he was trying to do. And the fact that There was no food in Austria-Hungary. People were starving because of the Allied blockade, but also because the Russians had occupied the agrarian part. So people were starving. There was disease, exhaustion, uh, no more military capability. And in the end, things collapsed. They did win the big victory over Russia, of course, but it didn't help. Uh, So in the end came a collapse. Now, at the very end, Carl never abdicated. He stepped, he officially stepped aside. He signed a document saying that he was taking himself out of the daily running of the empire. But he never officially abdicated because he assumed that someday he could come back. And indeed, after the war, when he and his family were exiled, twice he flew back to Hungary to try to regain the crown of Hungary, but he was betrayed by his own people. Uh, And also, I don't think the allies would have allowed him to stay as king of Hungary. Uh, And then he died exactly 100 years ago, almost today, at the age of something like 32. I mean, the poor guy uh, had a lot of bad luck, and he was very young. I don't remember which Habsburg it was, but I'm I was reading a while ago Radio Marx's book on, on the Habsburgs and he mentioned that again when someone abdicates from the throne you kind of become irrelevant to society to society and I'm not gonna quote it I don't have the exact quote in my head. But he mentioned that I mean there was a Habsburg that's really abdicated that kind of was a hero in the sense that he abdicated against Hitler and the Nazi regime and it was right oh. against I believe it I don't believe it was Carl von Habsburg. I don't remember which which one it was, but it was uh, Habsburg that's really abdicated and not abdicated, but he thought it was against and he voiced his opinion very highly against the Nazi Hitler and the Nazi yes. regime. So that Habsburg was Carl's eldest son Otto, who later became a, a leader in the pan-European movement and sat also in the European Parliament and uh, died only a few years ago uh, and was given an imperial state funeral in Vienna, even though uh, he was not in any way associated with the government. But you're correct, because the Hitler's vision went absolutely against the vision of the Habsburgs and the Habsburg state. And also Hitler hated the Habsburgs and would have liked to have interned them all during the war, but they fled. Uh, And uh, the Empress was in the United States for a while during the Second World War. Um, So yeah, the the Habsburgs were very careful uh, to keep their distance, unlike uh, the Hohenzollerns, 
who had a very tricky relationship with Hitler, or should we say a closer relationship? Thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure to have you on. And hope you enjoyed the summary of the Habsburg Empire. Before you go, do you have any social media and the thing you wish to promote or link you wish to meet with in the description? No, thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. I'm glad to hear. And my name is Alan. This has been the Dark Age Twelve. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. You can please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts. It will mean a lot to us if you write a review. And we are available every Thursday with new episodes on new topics. So please stay subscribed and like. And I'll see you next time. 